This podcast contains conversations about trauma and other challenging subjects and may be sensitive for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. If you need resources to get help, please see the show notes. You're listening to Drawn to a Deeper Story. I'm Kath Brew from DrawnToAStory.com. I'm an artist who illustrates and educates about marginalised experiences for positive change, with a particular interest in identity, belonging and expat life. This podcast is about the lives that challenge us and the difficult conversations around them. It's a place to listen openly, to absorb people's truths and to learn how to show up differently for the benefit of everyone. And that's you included. The person I'm talking to today, I know very well because I've been married to them for 14 years. And it's my wife, Ange. And Ange has led a really interesting life to the point where a friend once asked a mutual friend whether everything Ange said about her life was actually true. And this fits the theme of this podcast beautifully, the lives that challenge us, but also lives that aren't seen because people don't quite believe your truth. And maybe that stops you from talking about your life and then makes you feel even less seen. So I invited Ange here today, not because Ange is my wife, but because having lived with Ange for 14 years, I see the other side of having lived that interesting, in air quotes, life. Ange grew up with an absent father and a mother with manic depression. Add neurodiversity and being gay in there too, and you start to appreciate the challenges, the grace, the opportunities, the wisdom that I see, which other parties may not actually be aware of. And so I think there's a lot that we can learn from Ange. And so Ange, my wife, welcome to Drawn to a Deeper Story. Thank you very much. So it's such a massive subject that I struggle to try and find a way to start really. So the first question really I wanted to ask you is, what words would sum up your childhood to someone who doesn't know? It felt very safe, but when I was very young anyway, but I guess it was my childhood, so I didn't know anything different. And I referred to an absent father. When was the last time you saw him and do you have any memories of him? Um, I don't have any memories of him at all. Um, I last saw him in late 1960s, beginning of 61, perhaps. So it's, around two or three years old. Yeah, I, around two or three years old. I have one photograph of him mm-hmm. where my mother and I were with him sitting in my grandmother's garden. My mother moved to live in South Africa. Um, and the reason that she moved to South Africa is a very long story, but her father was very ill and she needed some space so she went out to Africa because my grandma had a a cousin there Mm -hmm. and it seemed to be a place where she could go and live relatively safely and in a in a kind of controlled way with Mm -hmm. family Um, but of course being my mother she was very independent so she soon moved away from family But uh, at the time she met my father, she was working as a doctor's assistant in Alexandra Township. That time in the in the sort of mid 1950s, she was one of the only white women that had access into the township. 
Mm. And my father apparently was a mounted policeman on a big white horse. They started having a relationship and fell in love, got engaged, got married, um, had me. From your point of view, from the, the, the podcast, I mean, my mother became an expat. And I think living in South Africa gave her some really quite interesting outlooks on life. And she had mm. some amazing experiences, including teaching domestic science at Durban Girls High. Mm. Um, at, at one point she was very drawn to my father who was extremely charming spoke multiple languages like mm. uh, my mother's father did and it turned out that he was I'm not entirely sure how to describe him not having known him but he was described to me by my mother as schizophrenic I mean I've, I've wheeled forward now to my teenage years which were mm. quite eccentric really but whether there was an actual diagnosis of that I don't know or whether he was just incredibly neurodiverse and had meltdowns that looked as mm. though it was changing personality I don't know mm. but anyway um he was quite abusive I believe um mm. and my mother was very frightened of him and she came back to England back to her parents just in time for Christmas 1959 mm-hmm she came with me and a suitcase and 50 pounds and I think she had decided herself at that point that she was leaving my father but unbeknown to her he was actually on the same aeroplane coming mm. back to the UK he hid on board from her and turned up at my grandmother's house three days after my mum did so where he'd been in the three days I do not know yeah. I bet she wasn't pleased she was and I only know this because after my grandmother died in her bedroom chest of drawers was a five-year diary that my aunt, who was my mother's younger sister, had written during the time that my mum was planning to go out to South Africa in the first place in 56. And it actually covered four years. So it, it finished just after Christmas when Andre, my father, mm. a- arrived on the doorstep. Mm. And apparently he was incredibly charming and made everybody very happy in the family, except for my mother, who went very quiet, mm. according to the diary. So um, she hadn't said anything to the other family members then about what she was dealing with? I wouldn't have thought at that time she would have opened up. The family did not naturally ever talk about emotions or mm. how they were feeling. And so I would have thought that three days was not quite enough time to get used to the joy of a new grandchild and her coming back from Africa I wouldn't have thought that she would have sat down with her parents no there's not the space in any circumstance let alone a family that doesn't really talk no and my grandfather was a depressive for many many years and it was partly his depression and the way that my grandmother and my aunt dealt with or didn't deal with grandpa's mm-hmm. depression was that one of the things that drove her to become an expat mm. in Africa. I think, frankly, she would have gone anywhere, but Africa was the place that her parents, because at that time, remember, I mean, a, a young woman on their own, it wasn't quite so easy to make decisions to travel. No, but she wasn't showing signs of manic depression then. No, her illness really only manifested itself when I was 12. 
So just going back to your father for a minute, were you aware of his absence as a child until you got to school and started to meet other children? And were you aware that your life was different in that way? I don't think I really was. Just trying to think. I found a picture of my mum, myself and a man when I was really quite small and I must have only just have started school and I said to my mum is that my father so I obviously realized I mean I knew what the concept of father was mm. wh whether it was through social interaction with little friends and going to their houses or whether it was through reading because I could read by the time I went to school at three and three quarters so I would have gone through the Janet and John this is Janet this is John this is mummy this is daddy mm. I was very aware of the concept of what a father was mm. but when I discovered that that was my father I was quite interested and I was also interested that I asked what his name was and my mother said he was called John which actually he wasn't <laughs> but mm. that uh, uh, there's, a, there's a reason why she called him something that wasn't um, his name and what is that reason the reason was that we had actually moved up to Yorkshire from my grandmother's home in the south of England but we hadn't moved just because it seemed to be a nice thing to do my mother had actually had to escape from my father and had taken me and I didn't find out until I was in my 30s that this had all been happening and wow. that only a couple of people outside close family knew where we were mm. it kind of figures because when I was sort of five five or six our surname changed and my mother's divorce went through but obviously mm -hmm. I was too small to have any of that explained to me mm. but I do remember standing on the corner of the road in the dark around the corner from where my grandma lived clutching a cuddly toy that I didn't like very much it wasn't <laughs> my favorite one which was a golly that my father had given me for Christmas so that was Christmas 1959 mm. I was standing on the corner of the road holding somebody's hand and we were waiting for a car to come and collect us mm. and that must have been the escape I can't think of any other reason why we were around the corner outside mm. somebody else's house did you wonder why when you got to Yorkshire did you wonder why you were there I don't actually remember getting to Yorkshire the earliest memory I have in Yorkshire was being taken for a walk by a chap whose house we were staying in and mm. I was in my pram and he took me to see some horses and I remember um, standing up in my pram to look over the wall so that I could stroke the noses of the <laughs> and we were staying with that family because they were around the corner from a cottage that had been condemned but my mum bought it and had it done up mm. so she rescued it was literally it was a Queen Anne A-frame cottage with two stairs so you couldn't get from one room upstairs to the other room upstairs mm. without going downstairs it's interesting looking back now looking at the logistics we moved up to Yorkshire because my grandmother's family were mill owners up there and, and we still had family up there mm -hmm. um, so the village was situated in between the Little Beck Valley which yeah. was owned by my grand's cousin and Robin Hood's Bay where her best friend from boarding school so she went where she had support yeah absolutely That's, that also to me shows 
the state that she was in and what she was seeking for herself. But I actually don't think that mum had very much choice in it. I think it was all orchestrated. Granny was the absolute matriarch of the family. She mm. was the strong spine and the rod of iron that literally kept everybody together. She was dealing with a, a, a very badly disabled younger daughter and a husband who was so depressed that he had bouts of mania and had to go into nursing homes and asylums right. and mm. all kinds of things. Incredibly what, strong woman. Yeah, what Granny said went, really. Yeah. And I imagine also with that environment that the stresses for your mother, if she was dealing with all this difficult stuff, that not wanting to add to the stress, but badly needing to get help and to try and have people help with her life. Yeah, absolutely. And she did have the most wonderful support. The cousin of my grandma's uncle, his wife, were absolutely amazing. My mum adored them. She spent a lot of time with them when she was growing up and as, mm. a, as a young woman. Yeah. You've talked about your mother and your father and the kind of the situation what was happening for you at this time how were you faring being in a new location were you starting to question who you were with being a lesbian because you've always said it was quite young I, I was very young I knew when I was um, first at school I'd grown up knowing I kind of operated slightly differently to everybody else but it, it was instinctively something that I didn't talk about it was something very internal and something that was it was quite a safe space in a way it was you know go into my head and feel the safety of being surrounded by people that I actually wanted to be surrounded by but my mum had to work so when mum was at work and I wasn't at school, um, I was looked after by a retired shepherd and his wife who lived just up the road. Yeah. He, I'm going to cry. It's all right. Loved him, loved him. And his wife, they taught mm. me everything that is important in life. Values, practical things, how to tie my shoelaces. Their cottage had no electricity. They had a single cold tap in the parlour where they ate and cooked and did everything. Cooking was on a big black range and there was a wash copper out, uh, a shed in the uh, backyard with a fire underneath it and mm. a blue bag and a dolly to do the washing. It was a real yeah. traditional grow your own vegetables keep chickens kind of upbringing with them so what um, do you think that gave you that you didn't feel you were getting otherwise well at the time I didn't think that it did anything it was just where I went and mm. it was my life and I really enjoyed it looking back I absolutely value having been brought up without any technology mm. so oil lamps at night candle to go to bed and the garden and natural history mm. you know, Mr McNeil used to be the local hedger and ditcher kept the village hedges in trim and I used to just wander up the road with him he had string tied around the ankles of his trousers so that things did run up so these are a very happy memories of your childhood and mm. you speak very positively of them when did things start to change with your mother's manic depression because other people won't know but you've spoken to me a lot of the difficulties of it coping with it and and how you coped and the kind of things that happened can you talk a bit around that the time when things really started to change for me was when we moved from Yorkshire and of course being small I didn't know anything very much about that either I was just told we were moving we moved to Bristol and I went to boarding school just before my seventh birthday so from a Yorkshire village where my accent was, oh, bugger me, cow's got out, to a posh 
all-girls boarding school in Bristol was a hell of a shock, I have to say. It was dreadful, absolutely awful. So from my point of view, that's when my life changed. But we had quite a long way before my mother actually started getting ill. She was very, very well in Bristol. She earned her living making ships in bottles. And when we moved to Bristol, she kept her job but just did it by post Mm. so that massive change that you felt in moving to Bristol why was that difficult and how did you cope with that it was difficult because it was such a different way of life from living in a rural village and existing in a fairly natural environment with mentors who were relating to the natural environment and animals and birds Mm. flowers to living in a block of flats on a newly built estate and going to boarding school, which was a completely alien environment. Yeah, completely different world. There was absolutely nothing in that environment that I was familiar with. Did you have anyone to talk to about it? How did that make you feel? I didn't have anybody and I was frightened. Mm. Must have been incredibly painful to not know where to go. I think the worst thing was I had to leave my cat. Oh, I think, though, with hindsight, you now look at your mother and what she was dealing with and trying to get away from, and you can see it with an adult's compassion. Does that help you now look at how it was? I never have blamed my mother or my family condition at all for Mm. anything. I mean, you know, my reaction my responses to things I've always sort of held as my own really. I think that's one of the things that's always fascinated me with you is that I think your childhood has been quite a challenging one and I'm always amazed at your grace around it and the way that you talk really positively about it but I'm also aware that it's all you knew and it's no different to any of our childhoods in the sense that it's all we know until things start to change and you start to to learn that there are other options and I just wanted to say really how I think one of the things that that I've learned from you very much so is about looking at what you do have and being appreciative for what you've got even though things might have been difficult. Mm, I think that's quite interesting really I mean my mum was very aware that because I was an only child with a single parent that she always gave me as much opportunity to spend time with other children and other people and I always had really positive male role models around and other children with diverse parents and outlooks and religions and Mm. everything so I was incredibly fortunate from that point of view although our family never ever talked about emotions or anything that was really kind of out there. They were very, very Edwardian and sort of upright and stiff mm. upper lip. So then when your mother's manic depression manifested, that must have been scary f- for everybody because of having had her father's depression and his issues and then knowing potentially that there was stuff with your father as well. I just wondered about her state of mind of knowing that things started to happen and thinking, oh God, like, there's like almost a foreboding because you've seen it witnessed already you can see what this is and it's now you're experiencing it yeah I think with 
what happened to mum, it wasn't a kind of sharp, suddenly it happened. She was very ill internally. She had very, very bad problems with periods and her gut. And because her family had a, a, a history of depression and mental illness, the doctors never really believed that she was in as much pain as she was. And eventually, I think I must have been about 11, she got taken into hospital and had a hysterectomy. And they discovered that she was actually, um, in her words, excuse me, she was turning green inside. So she obviously oh. was very, very ill. And I remember being taken by a friend of mine's father to see her in hospital. And she really was not well. Mm. But at 11, you, you don't really understand what's going on but what happened was that her surgeon was killed in a car accident three or four days after her operation so not only did she lose the person that she'd put her faith in Mm. but the entire hospital went into kind of meltdown through the grief of losing somebody so precious to them and they forgot to give my mother any hormones oh so from having a full hysterectomy and obviously needing aftercare that was quite significant because she had been so badly unwell she didn't have the right hormone treatment she was very lucky in that at the time that she was having that operation we'd moved again she'd become the senior matron at the school Beedales Mm. And I was in the junior school, but she did have friends in the staff who let her stay at their homes to recuperate. So I had somewhere to go as well. Yeah. Wow. That's just horrendous, isn't it? Nothing's changed in that women are still fighting today to have doctors recognise what they're dealing with from menopause and things that are going on with menstruation. It must have been incredibly difficult because I I think it's bad enough now, but then women didn't really have a voice. Yeah. So when I was 12, we were going to spend the holidays with friends back in the village in Yorkshire. And on the kind of second to last day of term, the housemistress summoned me and said, you're going to go up to Yorkshire, but your mum's not well. She's in hospital, but you'll be met at the station by the friends that you're going to be staying with. And I've arranged for one of the senior girls to take you across London so that was how I found out my mum was ill again. Mm. But you know, I didn't ask and she wouldn't tell me what exactly was going on. So mm. off I went with my suitcase and got up to Yorkshire. But what I didn't appreciate at the time, and I, I don't even remember being told exactly what had happened, but mum was in a mental hospital and she'd taken an overdose and they'd managed to kind of bundle her off to hospital. What actually happened was I then arrived back from school and mum wasn't there and I'd been told that she was very ill and I was actually quite pleased she wasn't there because I wasn't sure that I could cope with that. I was Mm. quite happy being with old family friends. But one evening we were sitting down to have our supper and she walked in through the back door. Wow. She discharged herself from hospital. That would have been perfectly fine if she had been perfectly fine, but she Mm. actually was somebody else. Apart from looking like my mother, she was somebody else. And I can't even remember how long 
she was there before the cousin came along and extracted her. She was organising my wedding. Now, bearing in mind I was 12, she was booking the hotel, she was booking hair appointments, roaring about all over the place. She had a drawer that had paper money in it. Now, bearing in mind that the way that my family operated was that they wrote cheques for, for things. Mm-hmm. It was very rare for my mother to have anything more than a £5 note in her in her purse so there was this money she was knitting a a jumper out of the most lurid fluorescent orange that could possibly have been made in the kind of end of the 60s 70s Mm. she just was not her so what happened the cousin was summoned and he arrived in a massive great big rolls royce in the middle of this yorkshire village and i remember standing in the middle of the road with my mother and with him and she was busy telling him about my impending marriage and all the things that she had to do and she couldn't possibly go with him Mm. him looking at me and looking at her and looking at me and looking at her and he said to me how old are you and i said i'm 12 It was really surreal. I didn't have the capacity to unpick what was going on. Mm. The only thing that really exercised me at the time was whether I was going to be able to go back to school. So that was your safe space? It was absolutely my safe space. And nobody had told or could tell me whether I was going to be going back in September. Mm. So for the most part of that school holidays, while mum was actually away from my immediate surroundings and my sight, I I didn't have to think about it. It was absolutely fine. But what Mm. I worried about was whether I could go back to school. Mm. As a preteen who didn't know then either, but neurodiverse and doesn't like change. And then your mother, who the natural order of things is meant to be the stable one your safety in your life is not because she's acting strangely it must have been a very strange period of your life as that you're going through puberty almost just about as well like massive changes it it was quite strange I remember thinking what can I do that's really bad and so I went and bought a package of cigarettes and (laughs) smoked a couple under a bush and decided I didn't like it Um, (laughs) I was was staying with hunting shooting fishing friends and I spent a lot of time sitting on the back doorstep shooting Britain's plastic soldiers out of the apple tree with an air rifle. After the cousin with the Rolls Royce took mother away and and left us in, in much relief. The story goes that at some point during that illness, she turned up on stage in the middle of a play. She must have <laughs> let herself in. Yes, Um, but I've not ever seen any newspaper accounts of that, but it must have been absolutely hysterical. Can you believe? Yeah, and it's also something that would appear in a newspaper locally, like a local show. That was a very bizarre um, time in life, and and Mm. she never really 100% recovered from that. She didn't have as bad a nervous breakdown again she had some some blips she was incredibly artistically talented she could make anything mm. she could make all my clothes and all her clothes she could do anything with a needle and thread mm. she was a brilliant cook she she got the highest marks at college when she went to do um domestic science yeah 
that the college had ever had. Yeah, wow. From the way you've talked about her, she sounds like a remarkable woman. I mean, things you haven't said to listeners here, but is the things that she put in place to make sure that you were safe with guardians and people like Mr McNeil. And when she was well, taking you to plays and to exhibitions. I mean, I come from kind of unashamedly, because it's my it's my background, a kind of upper middle class family where theatre and the arts and going to museums and galleries and having a really incredible education is something that from the time of my great grandparents was something that was considered a a really important thing. My my great grandfather was self-taught largely and he educated himself and um, worked his way up and, and made sure that his children had what he didn't have when they were mm-hmm. growing up and they they were all educated in Europe before the first world war although there were constraints with disabilities and illnesses and things like that we were quite sort of outward looking mm. so I was, I was incredibly lucky and yes I had guardians in South Africa and I had guardians in the UK and yeah mum mum put in place everything that could possibly be necessary but I also imagine from what you've talked about that family environment of opportunity and outward looking these amazing things and then that mixed with not really talking about emotions to then have such mental health issues that not necessarily your mother's but it just makes me think about the the connections between the silent pressures and not silent pressures. I absolutely hear what you're saying. I think from the point of view of my grandfather, who was obviously very depressed, the pressure that he had from granny and my aunt, my aunt was physically, visibly disabled Mm. and grandpa was invisibly disabled. Mm. And he was told how... Um, there was nothing wrong with him how would he like it if he couldn't walk the pressure and emotional abuse Mm. from misunderstanding and silence was Mm. absolutely huge in the household and that's why mum felt that she needed to escape she just Mm. had to get out of it she couldn't cope with it any longer but then also your poor mother that she goes to escape that and then clearly fell in love and and had you but but then also the stories that you've talked about of your father being a bit of a rogue and the fear that she must have felt when she suddenly realized what she was part of mm. with um I mean tell the I'm this is me drawing out the story of the diamond my father um got involved in uncut diamond smuggling apparently and my mother found a stash of his diamonds at one point and threw them down the loo which obviously didn't please him terribly he pulled a gun on her and I think she was absolutely terrified poor thing Um, so there was stuff going on that she had absolutely no control Mm. over um, in a culture that she really didn't have much knowledge about and she wasn't very streetwise Mm. Um, it must have been absolutely terrifying for her yeah absolutely hugely Uh, so yeah, I, I I think my father was um, was deeply in debt. Granny actually talked about having paid his debts off, mm. and sold my mother's house from under her. Mm. Um, 
Because obviously when you were married in those days, the man actually then had control over everything. Yeah, yeah. Hence why running away to, to Yorkshire and, and hiding to change yeah. names and try and get a divorce. And yeah. I mean, she was incredibly stealth and, and good at what she managed to then achieve for you. She both. was. One of the reasons why we had to move from Yorkshire to Bristol was that when my mum did the change of name thing from our original surname that was my father's to the new one, yeah, you have to put a notice in the London Gazette. That just is so not friendly to women who That's, are being abused. Yeah, exactly. And, and the, the, the first notice that went in about it had my grandmother's address, but then they had to put another notice in with her proper address because obviously the first one wasn't quite kosher. Yeah. And it was within, literally within not very long after that notice went in that we had to move again. Yeah. So I now with my adult eyes look Mm. that and think ah well that was another running away session yeah ran away again to somewhere that had one of granny's old school friends Mm. we went Mm. to bristol what leads me on from that is thinking about which which other people won't know but i know as your wife is apart from the neurodiverse side of dislike of change the importance for you of home having moved so much and had that instability home and your home base is is incredibly important and I'd like to ask you about the impact of all of this stuff on you as an adult now what do you feel that you've been left with I guess is what is it that you've had to deal with in your adult life as a result of your childhood four generations of family junk Mm. (laughs) um well I say junk some of it's quite historically interesting Mm. Um, yeah home is is really important and I think a kind of vague sense of control of not losing that home Mm. is is quite important we had a beautiful house when my mum had her really bad breakdown and that got sold and the furniture got shipped off to I think a lot of it went to America and that was family furniture from um you know other generations Mm. and you've also talked about things that were important to you that you just never saw again when we moved from Yorkshire when mum had not two halfpennies to rub together really Mm. things obviously went to auction Mr McNeil actually gave me his uh shepherd's star and his sash that there was a special organization for shepherds they used to march on their special day once a year and he gave me his his regalia Mm. but I never saw it again and I I remember him giving it to me it was it was real yeah it was big yeah it's important which also then from an expat perspective has a big impact in that you meet me and I come to live in the UK and live in this house which is packed full, like you talk about the family junk, but all this stuff that's important and me coming in and trying to find space within the house and wanting to remove things up against your not wanting to change because of you've had so much change and that space of learning each other um, and from our own perspectives, it was quite a challenge. It's been a bit like chess, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been it's been really big. But I also think once I understood your life more, it helped me understand why you didn't want to get rid of things 
or move to a bigger house because for you those things are connected to trauma and it triggers a trauma and there's a fear and I, I also want to say how well we've done we've really grown through those things and absolutely been able to see each other but I think it's important for partners to understand context that they may not necessarily understand so a perfect example is several years ago I was badly depressed and to the point where I couldn't get off the sofa without having a panic attack and all I wanted was for Ange to be there for me and she was there in the way that she could but it was a really difficult time because as you said to me and to some friends you couldn't go there because it was too close to your mother's depression and I think we, we found our way but I also think for listeners do you have any words about how when you're the one that is being triggered and when there's these these issues that you've lived with how you manage your important relationships that's a really interesting question i i think that that was a difficult time Mm. but one thing i was able to help you with was when your father was unwell very much so yeah i'll just say for listeners who don't know my father left our family and i hadn't spoken to him in eight years and then i found out that he was having heart surgery and Ange said to me, <laughs> if he doesn't come out of this operation, would you be able to cope with an unresolved relationship? And I got very angry and said, yes, I'm fine. And clearly I was not. And Ange was very good at pointing very gently at me, poking and pointing and to get me to deal with that. And that's come absolutely from your experiences of knowing what's important. Yeah, I, I think families are... are always really really interesting and the family dynamics are are extraordinary and I think what I'm going to say now will surprise a lot of people I'm particularly lucky in that I am the last the very last of my family Mm. and so I have the ability in earthly terms to sit back and look at the long-term perspective backwards to see where things fitted together in ways that I wasn't able to appreciate them when I was growing up. And also I know that all the difficulties and issues and strains and peculiarities are actually over and done with and safe and Mm. so being the last one is it's quite privileged position really and one of the reasons why it's quite nice being surrounded by four generations of stuff is that each of those things holds a memory of one of those people their achievements or their interests or sort of little quirks of the relationships and being dyspraxic and not having a very good ability to recall memories always um looking at a book or a an ornament or a piece of furniture actually triggers those memories that Mm. other people who've got family members can just go and ask yeah what what was auntie susan doing in 1960 something or other well Mm. i don't have anybody so i have to look around and think ah yes that Mm. book and is that helpful because you can pick and choose the memory so you can choose to think the positive memories it's it's very it's very very helpful sometimes Mm. sometimes the not so positive memories come up and that's not no bad thing Mm. 
I, I think it's all very, very interesting. And I would just say, I think, too, that we never know what someone's dealing with until we actually start to talk to them and hear their stories. I know when, when we met, there's that you fall in love and you're in that loved up stage and everything's wonderful. And then there's that phase, like six months where you start to actually see the real person that like chews loudly or snorts or what, like all the things that start to irritate you about someone that you love. When my mum was actually seriously depressed and in my late teenage years, I was having to pick up the phone and have her committed to hospital and call ambulances because she'd taken overdoses and things. I never, ever knew what was going on in her mind and she never, ever talked about it. Again, quite surreal, but mm. you just deal with it in the way that you have to deal with it, really. Yeah. But I also think that has shaped you massively and that what I know of you, apart from the neurodiversity so you operate slightly differently but from an emotional point of view from my perspective I'm an absolute public processor and you're a very private processor you're more an internal processor and I think I've often wondered to what degree these experiences have also impacted that because for you those kind of emotions could be potentially difficult and distressing and you've talked too about the distance that you had to put in place between you and your mother and also your grandmother what are some of those coping strategies that you developed that you're now as an adult more aware of that you did just because you had to well absolutely distancing emotional mm. distancing from um my mother and I did, didn't have an awful lot to do with my grandmother until I moved back to Dorset and mm. I mean granny was a really frightening character very bossy and um, the thing is, I always stood up to her. I wouldn't mm. have any of it. And she really respected me for it. Mm. She was hysterical, though. She, when, when she was 101 or something, and the, there was a knock on the, her front door, and the builder from next door came and said, well, well, I'm just coming to tell you that we're going to have to renew the fence between mm -hmm. you and next door. And the good news is you don't have to pay for it. And she was <laughs> only about four foot something tall. And she looked up at him and said, it's a good job too. It's not my fence. Good day. And shut the door. <laughs> oh, dear. I love the, your, the sound of your grandmother. I think I would be bloody terrified of her. But I love the stories and the things that you used to talk about. And I think all of this adds to your quirk and who you are and the stories you tell and like I talked about at the beginning the friend of ours that didn't actually believe that your life was true yeah, um but, but but you say that I'm an internal processor I I know I am an internal processor compared to you but mm. compared to the rest of my family well, I am an external processor <laughs> Shit. I, I try you know who I am is what you get really yeah that's yeah. quite funny to put it into that context because mm. like you're so internal compared to me yeah if, if you think that the, the people that actually influenced me that brought me up within the family were my grandmother and my great aunt mm. both of whom nursed in the first world war yeah strong and women women mm. in our family did not go to funerals and it wasn't just a family thing it was an edwardian thing women stayed at home and did the tea because they were emotional and couldn't cope with funerals and so we ended up being all women in the family when my mother died, my grandmother refused to come to her funeral. So when her youngest daughter died, I said, now, Granny, you are coming to the funeral. Oh, no, women don't go to funerals. I said, Gran, we are all women. Does that mean that nobody ever goes to funerals anymore? Oh, oh, 
So she made a confession <laughs> to go to that one. She was very proud of me for going into the funeral business. She mm. she really followed my progress mm. uh, and supported me hugely. Mm. And in fact, I, I went into the funeral business after my mum died. Mm. So I didn't actually physically look after her, but I had quite a lot to do with designing her funeral. Mm. But I did actually look after the rest of them um, yeah. myself personally. The only one I, I didn't take care of was my cousin Chris Hewitt, the gay crippled activist poet who lived mm. and died in San Francisco. Mm. Can I just say you use that word crippled because it was a word that he used? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a yeah. word of empowerment for him. He, he, he was part of the crip gay movement in, in San Francisco, a renowned poet whose archive is in San Francisco public mm. library. So mm. yeah. He's a thing. But you and I both met his mother and you had <laughs> blessing from her mm. for, for our relationship. We weren't the first in the family. And my great aunt had uh, had a, a lady friend who she tried to move into the family home and great grandpa said, I don't think so. So she went and bought them a, a home where they lived. I think they were together for about 40 years. There's mm. My, a bit of my family but yeah. you know I was, I was brought up th th there's a lot of disability my grandmother and myself were probably the only ones although I'm neurodiverse um uh, and granny was basically a, a, a dragon in in a little tiny lady's clothing but everybody in the family was disabled in some way so there was either mental health illness with depression and manic depression mm. childhood rheumatoid arthritis my great great aunt was blind and my great aunt went blind so I was brought up in this extraordinary family where difference was a thing mm. and cousin Chris Chris was in his wheelchair mm. um, and so I was I was brought up in this in this family where you know before before proper disabled parking spots by the beach and things like that were a thing we'd go out for for sunday drives in the car and and i'd be cowering on the back seat because i knew there would be a huge row but mm. we needed a space where my aunt could see the view it's i keep thinking about how all of this manifests in your adult life and the impact of these things and i'm very aware that when we go out on drives that if I do anything that's not quite the norm or I do a big u-turn and it doesn't quite work so I'm doing something else and that sense of being on the edge of creating an issue I'm aware that your tension rising and I'm aware that it triggers that space it's, it's all those years of sitting on the armrest that comes down in the middle of the back seats I that used to be my seat and it was my observation platform of how family Sunday drives played out and it yeah. was just the most horrendous yeah <laughs> horrendous thing well I love Sunday drives so it's a good job we're going to get it out of you I think that's where I want to finish really is on a positive note because actually there's been all these challenges and it's been a remarkable life that you've lived so far but also these things do define you but they also don't define you because you grow through them and you become a different person and I think one of the real positive things that I take from all my family is that they were all artists in their own way yeah and I have the ability to do art and yeah. to sculpt and use the positive parts of my neurodiverse brain to be able to do the things that I can do really well and yeah. 
and uh, use it for processing and reflection yeah and also i've actually come further in life from from a achievement point of view having left school at 16 because uh, you know really with all this rubbish going on with mum i couldn't concentrate there was mum there was me being gay and there was me being neurodiverse which wasn't thought about in the 70s i came out of school with very few qualifications and I have more qualifications than I can even remember that I've got now yeah hoorah yeah (laughs) fantastic absolutely fantastic I think it's a really nice way to end a conversation around challenges with the reflection of the positive things we've certainly had our challenges but that to me is a good marriage when you work through them and you're still together and you still love each other I would be really suspicious of people who say that their marriages have all been a piece of cake all the way through yeah absolutely what are you not talking about what are you not telling each other yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly and talking of good marriages and jobs that need to be done I think our food shopping is about to be delivered so we need to end the podcast (laughs) I joke but it really is about to be delivered so thank you hugely for coming on I know talking about personal things can be a challenge sometimes and particularly when you have no idea what I'm going to ask you so thanks so much for coming on and being willing to share and to talk about your life it was only a little bit of my life happy to chat further well thank you (laughs) bye 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 you've been listening to drawn to a deeper story with kath brew